Let me begin by saying how much Kathy and I love you all and count it a real privilege to be here and thank you very, very much for inviting me to come and address you during this uh, missions conference. We are humbled by that and very thankful, very thankful that we have the uh, blessing of being sister churches and can share together in uh, different things. Uh, loved having the youth group up for missions conference during this past year. Uh, each time that I've been here, I've been so thankful for the ministry of the word and for your worship. The music is outstanding. Thank you very much for all that you do. A uh, real word of appreciation to uh, Nick and Felicia for having us in their home and uh, being so gracious in their hospitality. And Eva and Avery, we have grown to love you very much. You're very special. We thank the Lord for you. I really do thank the Lord for your pastor, Nick. I esteem him very highly in the Lord. In fact, when I grow up, I want to be more like him. I ask a number of you if you've ever heard of this uh, man that I'm going to cover tonight. I've yet to find anybody that has really heard of him. Not too many people in uh, these days would know Samuel Marinus Zwamer. Zwamer with a Z, W-E-M-E-R. Zwamer. Samuel Marinus Zwamer. He's really known as the Flying Dutchman or the apostolic missionary to the Muslims. Samuel was born on April 12, 1867, and he died April 2, 1952, just a week or so before he turned 85 years of age. Interesting, I'm 62, and Zwamer died within a week of when I was born, just after I was born. And he died just two years after the Civil War ended, which means between me and Samuel Zwamer, there's only one man between me and the Civil War. Never thought of it that way. Kath, had you thought of it that way? One man between us and the Civil War. Let me give you something of the background of the times prior to his birth. Between 1850 and 1869, just the world and the national scene of what was going on in his day, 1850 to 1869, the world was infatuated with knowledge, knowledge that could be gained from the observation of the natural world. In fact, 11 years before Samuel's birth, Darwin, his theory of evolution was published in his book, The Origin of the Species. That came out. Thomas Huxley was known as Darwin's bulldog, and he had confidently announced that God is dead. That was all prior to the Civil War. This was a period of new industrial growth as well. The Civil War created a market for textiles and packed meat. Steel production suddenly rose because of the Bessemer and the open hearth systems. George Pullman invented the sleeper car for the railways, and John D. Rockefeller formed Standard Oil of Ohio to get into the coal oil business. President Andrew Johnson's bitter impeachment trial 
reveal the deep resentment in the northern states that they still had toward their southern neighbors after the Civil War. For their part, the southern states were chafing under the rule of the carpetbaggers from the north, who along with their benefactors, the federal military governors, and their southern sympathizers, the scalawags, as they were called, they they sought to punish the southerners uh, for their cessation from the Union. Secession. Hence, in 1866, a group of Confederate veterans formed a vigilante group to take revenge and to instill fear. And by anglicizing the Greek word kuklas, that means a circle or a band of brothers, they formed their name, the Ku Klux Klan. That was formed a year before Samuel Zwamer was born. Samuel Zwamer was born to a nation of 37 states, the last of which was Nebraska. Nebraska joined the Union the month before his birth. Travel among some of these states was greatly facilitated by the building of long bridges like the Brooklyn Bridge and bridges across the Mississippi, the Missouri, and the Ohio Rivers. Steel had begun to replace iron. And the new industrial age was in full swing. However, there were sweatshops and strikes and in some areas widespread poverty. Nevertheless, if you were, uh, if you had a little bit of money, the government was selling land in sections of 140 acres for as little as $1.25 an acre with certain conditions about how you would use the land and improve on the land. The population during that time of the United States was 37 million at the time Zwamer was born. By the time he died in 1952, there was 150 million. And of course, since that time that I was born, the nation has doubled to 300 million. U.S. Grant became the 18th president of the U.S. in 1869 when Zwamer was two years old. And by the time Zwamer was three years old, Congress was passing enforcement acts to contain and defang the KKK, which had by then spread all across the southern states. By the time Zwamer was 30 years old, great waves of European immigrants began to arrive in the U.S. Dutch immigrants began to pour into America at the end of the century. Fifty years earlier in that century, Africans, some of whom were Muslims, were brought to America and sold into slavery. And then 50 years later, just after World War I, Muslims from Europe begin to immigrate into the United States. These latter two groups would eventually form the basis of the American Muslim community with an interest in Islamic revival as we know it today. Before Zwamer reached 45 years of age, you had the Boxer Rebellion 
go take off in China. The anti-imperialist and anti-Christian sentiments they had. With all the attendant consequences on mission work uh, there in China. Teddy Roosevelt had led his famous charge up San Juan Hill in the Spanish-American War. Europe was on the brink, on the threshold of World War I. Russia was toppling into the abyss of atheistic communism. Zwemer lived in a world marked by social tension, political turmoil, spotty economic and industrial growth, and uneven distribution of wealth. His parents and his family... They had family lines uh, that were of the French Huguenot or Huguenot. Take your pick. Either one is right uh, in terms of how you say it. They were of the Huguenot stock that uh, fled from Holland in 1685. Samuel's father was named Adrian. His mother, Katharina Boone. Both were of German descent. They immigrated into the U.S., As an engaged couple in 1849, they disembarked into New York City and made their way up the Erie Canal to a Dutch colony in Rochester, New York, where they were married and began their own family. In due time, Adrian sensed a call to the ministry, so they moved to Holland, Michigan. If you've ever read Mark Chansky's book, Manly Dominion, that's where Mark lives and pastors serving Christ today. But these Waymers moved to Holland, Michigan, and there he began to study theology. The Christian church at that time seemed to have finally been reawakened to its responsibility to take the gospel to all the nations of the world. During the 20 years immediately preceding Waymers' birth, more than 30 new missionary societies came into existence in Europe and in the U.S. Men like Eli Smith, Henry Jessup, Cornelius Van Dyke, they were working in Syria. We get a lot of Syria in the news today. These men were working in Syria under the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions. ABCFM, American Board of of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, was formed in 1810. That's when William Carey was around. As a cooperative effort among several denominations, including the Reformed Church in America, the church in which Zwemer later grew up and, and under which he served. Adoniram Judson helped to form that board and was sent by them in 1812. Henry Jessup had gone out to Syria in 1856. Again, this is before the Civil War. He was founder of the Syrian Protestant College that later became the American University in Beirut. Eli Smith had gone to the field in 1826. He went to Malta, there in the Mediterranean, and then he moved to Beirut in 1933. His primary work would be on the Arabic translation of the Bible. He was the first to bring a printing press there that had Arabic type. And then Dr. Cornelius Van Dyke, a medical doctor, went there in 1840. He taught at the university, and then he began to take up work on that Arabic Bible. 
And their translation of the Bible into what then was modern Arabic was released in 1860. And it was this book, this Bible, that Zwamer passed out liberally all over the Arab world. That Van Dyke Smith translation, though now somewhat archaic, is still widely used today. In fact, RBMS, our foreign mission arm of ARBCA, in 1996 had a special project. You guys have had a special project through RBMS for Nigeria. In 1996, with Leon Blosser in the Arab world, he was in Bahrain, we put together a special project using this Van Dyke Smith translation of the Bible that was done in 1840, using that, although it had never uh, got the vowel points put under the text, Leon did that, put it on a floppy disk, and our special project was to finance that and to distribute it, and so that Muslims around the Arab world could carry the Bible in a very discreet way. The church in Zwamer's early days was ignited by the student volunteer movement. That began, began in 1886. Zwamer was 17 years old. And the cry then of those students, mostly college students, was evangelize the world in this generation. We as Christians are responsible for the unevangelized in our world. In our generation, we're responsible for people alive today while we're alive. And we got to get that. We are responsible to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's our duty to present Christ to them. And as never before, it caught the attentions of hundreds of young men and women who set about the task of taking the gospel to the unreached people of the earth and Samuel Zwamer was one of those young people. He not only went out as a missionary, but he would also become one of the chief spokesmen for the promotion of the student volunteer movement. His parents and family, Adrian and Katharina Zwamer, had 15 children. But only 11 of Samuel's 14 brothers and sisters lived to adulthood. Of his six surviving sisters, all became school teachers, and one of them, one of the six, Nellie, served 40 years as a missionary in China. Of his five surviving brothers, four entered the gospel ministry, one of them became president of the Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. His younger brother, Peter, followed him to Arabia and died only six years being there of a very strenuous but valiant service that he gave to Christ in the country of Oman, where we, RBMS, has just sent a missionary this past year to Oman. Peter's illness and death were the direct result of his labor in Oman. During his youth, Samuel Zwamer was born and uh, was raised in the manse or the parsonage of his father's first pastorate in Vriesland, Michigan. In 1870, his father, Adrian, became pastor of a church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, 
And it was in Milwaukee that Sam began to attend school and learn German. He already knew Dutch, he knew English, and now he's studying German. His two favorite books were Fox's Book of Martyrs and Pilgrim's Progress. As a youth, he learned the skill of carpentry from his father. This love of woodworking remained in him in his later years, a skill that would be put to good use during his early years in Arabia. He had a deep love and a high regard for both of his parents. Zwamer said this of his father, I understood the loving fatherhood of God as Jesus taught it because of what I saw in my own father. Brothers, what a, how important it is to model the Father in heaven for our children. In 1883, Zwamer completed Hope Preparatory School and entered Hope College. He was 16 at the time. His freshman class consisted of 17 students, that is, five men, and I'm sorry, seven students, five men and two women. All seven graduated together. Of those seven, Albertus Peters and his wife were two of the seven. They they entered the missionary service for the cause of Christ in Japan. H.S. Peake also became one of the seven, uh, from the seven, and he too went to Japan as a missionary. And Samuel Zwamer, later dubbed the Flying Dutchman and the Apostolic Missionary to Muslims, went into the Islamic world. So there you have four out of a class of seven who would become long-term missionaries. No doubt speaks well of the level of encouragement they must have received in their school toward missions. And one of those who encouraged Samuel Zwamer the most was his own mother. Just before her death, she related to him how she had prayed for him to be a missionary when he was still an infant. Mothers, do you pray for your children that God might perchance Extend his grace in wonderful ways and call your children into missionary service. During his summer vacation periods, he sold books, among them Bibles for the American Bible Society. In fact, while in college, he had purchased a horse for this work. In fact, during his entire life, he never owned a car. He never learned to drive. On one occasion, he was arrested for peddling the Bibles without a license, but a telegram from the American Bible Society was able to convince the town fathers that the Scriptures should not require license for distribution. After college, Zwamer attended New Brunswick Theological Seminary in New Jersey. His enthusiasm for missions to cause him was to cause him some trouble at first. He, he had an incredible zeal. He was a brilliant man, but sometimes his zeal got ahead of him. He, in fact, set up a, a missions conference there at the seminary. He invited the speaker. He advertised the events, but he forgot to get prior approval to use the seminary as the venue. 
At times, his life seemed to be a whirlwind of promoting ideas and stirring up enthusiasm, and he usually needed someone else to make the implementation of his ideas run smoothly. However, he challenged the seminary student body to take on the support of a missionary, and they did. Reverend Lewis Scudder, M.D., for the Reformed Church in America, a missionary in India. So he got the, school, he got the seminary while he's a student. Let's support a missionary, and they did. Zwamer was always in demand as a speaker in other schools to promote the cause of missions and the student volunteer movement. And I would like to ask, what men among us are like that? Where you're going to challenge people. You're going to bring up the subject, promote the subject, get folks thinking about it, get them reading books, get them holding conferences, initiating uh, possibilities and ideas for more outreach and more missions. That was Samuel's Waymer. While in seminaries, Waymer read Gray's Anatomy and other medical texts in preparation for putting whatever he learned into good use later on the mission field. For a time, he worked in a clinic with a young doctor who was doing graduate work and who later became one of the best-known missionary doctors in the world, Sir William Wanless of India. He also bottled medicine at the Bleecker Street Mission. And in accordance with the mission's rules, he always attached a verse of Scripture to every prescription. And in doing so, he greatly upset a patient on one occasion when one day he dispensed a bottle marked for external use only, poison. And he put the verse, prepare to meet thy God, (laughs) attached to the prescription. But his elemental knowledge of medicine was put to good use a few years later while in Bahrain, where it gained friends and opened a way for a ministry that eventually included a church which Kathy and I have worshipped in, an orphanage, a school, and a hospital that I have been treated in is there today, the American Mission Hospital. He was the founder. Let me talk about the founding of the Arabian Mission. In November 1988, Zwamer and two seminary students, this is when Zwamer was 21 years old, These two students, they were ahead of him one year, and they together, these three men, approached their professor of Hebrew and Arabic for advice on choosing a field of service. The professor was an American, but he had been born in Egypt, and he had a brother who was still residing there. So it seemed natural for Dr. John Lansing to recommend the Arabic-speaking world to these three, James Cantine, Philip Phelps, and Samuel Zwamer. However, they would have to find the means of support and an organizational structure in order to make their vision a reality. So in May of 19, or say, 1889, they put their proposal for an Arabian mission before the RCA, that is Reformed Church in America, Board of Foreign Missions, which had been established in 1857 for work especially in China, India, and Japan. However, by 1888, the board was struggling 
under a debt of $35,000, which was no small thing in 1888, a load uh, on them that they were in no position to expand in their field of labor. So with Lane Singh's assistance and sponsorship, the three students formed what they called the wheel. And they adopted a logo consisting of an iron wheel with three webbed spokes. Beneath the wheel was written the quotation from Genesis 17:18, which says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. Ishmael being the first of the Arab world, as opposed to his brother being the first of the Jewish world. Above this wheel was the name Arabian Mission. These three men were the three spokes, and Lane Singh was the hub. Their plan now proposed founding an a undenominational mission founded by a syndicate of supporters and overseen by a board of trustees. So on August 16, 1888, they, they secured their first contribution, and the Arabian mission became a reality. They started their own mission. And of the original band of three men, Philip Phelps withdrew from going abroad as a missionary. He entered the pastorate, and he raised funds for the Arabian mission from the home side. Samuel Cantine, who had left a career in civil engineering, he went into seminary, was ordained a missionary October 1st, 1889, and he set sail for Beirut in October 16th. And Samuel Wehmer was ordained the following May. That was 1889. He was 22 years old, and then he set sail for Beirut at the end of June to join Cantine, where he would continue his Arabic study. On the way to the Arab world, while in London, Zwamer purchased a copy of Charles Doughty's Arabian Deserta, an account of his recent travels in which he disguised himself, and he went into Mecca and Medina, Islam's two holiest cities. Zwamer had a copy of this book. He devoured it and treasured the book. And many years later, on the eve of World War I, while he was in Cairo, he sold his copy of that book to T.E. Lawrence, whom you know probably as Lawrence of Arabia. Finally, Zwamer arrived at Beirut to rejoin Cantine. There the men came under the spell of Henry Jessup and Dr. Van Dyke. And both of these men were super influential in Zwamer's life and his missionary outlook. They were the first resident Arab world missionaries that he met. By the end of 1890, we find them in Cairo. And from Cairo, they began traveling separately around the Arabian Peninsula, looking for a suitable place to begin their work. And all along the way, they sold Bibles and scripture portions. Cantine finally reached Basra in Iraq. We've heard a lot about Basra in Iraq. That's where he went. And before long, one of their converts met an untimely death, suspected to be from poisoning. 
Zwamer followed. He joined Cantine in Basra, and soon we find him making a dangerous journey, a two-month journey into the heart of Mesopotamia. By the way, the word Mesopotamia has a Greek meaning. It means the land between two rivers in an area geographically located between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, largely corresponding to Iraq, western Iran, and eastern Syria. He was constantly looking for a way to enter the darkest strongholds of ignorance and Islam, distributing Bibles all along the way. In 1892, he returned to the island of Bahrain. There in 1902, he founded what eventually became known as the American Mission Hospital. He was 35 years of age. That's where... Our brother Leon Blosser, an RBMS missionary, spent the last 10 years of his missionary life uh, there in Bahrain. It was a pleasure to, to visit him there and to appreciate the hospital and the church that is there. And it was while he was in Bahrain that Zwamer wrote two books of note. One is The Life of Raymond Lull. And the other is Arabia, the cradle of Islam, both of which are still sought after much today. Raymond Lull was a man that was born in Majorca, Spain, just off the coast of Spain. He, he influenced the world so much to reach Muslims. He, got, uh, he couldn't get seminaries to adopt a whole program to train men for the mission for missions in in the, the Islamic world, the Arab world. So, but one thing he did do, he got he got uh, uh, universities all over Europe to begin to teach Arabic, which really helped a lot in in finding men along the way who might be suited and capable to go as missionaries to the Arab world. And uh, we're talking Raymond Lull was in the late twelve hundreds early 1300s, 500 years before William Carey. And he was a man of tremendous courage who would go into those northern parts of Africa where they were so as they were the hotbeds of Islam and uh, he would go into the centers of the cities and be, just begin to call out the Islamic scholars and intellectuals, come on out, let's debate. He made him mad. He, was, he spent a good bit of time in prison. He was kicked out of those countries. He kept going back, and finally, he was stoned to death in Algiers. Courageous, courageous. If you ever get a chance, study the life of Raymond Lowell. Samuel Zwamer wrote a whole book about him. Samuel's marriage. He married Amy Elizabeth Wilkes who was born in England, but she was trained in nursing in Australia. Miss Wilkes was, had uh, been sent out to serve in Iraq as a nurse uh, with the Church Missionary Society. They met in Kuwait in April of 1895 when Amy had just arrived from Australia and they were married in May of 1896. She was a wonderful wife to Zwamer, no doubt the only woman in the world who could keep up with him. She was robust in health, a generous hostess, and every bit Zwamer's mental match. Two of their four children she eventually bore to Samuel died within a week 
of one another in 1904 in Bahrain. Zwamer named his son Raymond Lull because he was born on the day he sent off his manuscript of his finished book on the life of that famous first missionary to the Muslim world and a martyr in the cause of the gospel. At his wife's death in 1937, they'd been married 41 years. Zwamer wrote a poem in tribute to her. Here it is. Her love was like an island in life's ocean, vast and wide, a peaceful, quiet shelter from the wind and rain and tide. T'was bound on the north by hope, by patience on the west, by tender counsel on the south, and on the east by rest. Above it, like a beacon light, shone faith and truth and prayer. And through the changing scenes of life, I found a haven there. Kathy and I visited her grave in Bahrain and those two children that he buried there. Three years later, after she died, after uh, Amy, Amy died, Samuel married Margaret Clark. He outlived her by two years. Zwamer and others before him buried two wives on foreign soil. It must be noted that both Zwamer's wives shared his vision and were of great support to him. Both assisted him in his work as an author, and both were gracious hostesses. Of Amy, a Muslim in Bahrain once remarked, quote, If I had a wife as intelligent as yours, I'd be satisfied with just one wife. Zwamer had been chiding him about Islam's permission to have four wives. His explorations, travels, and untiring labors. His original intention was to occupy the heartland of the Arabian Peninsula, the birthplace and citadel of Islam. He introduced himself to them as the guest of God, which, i.e., is sent, the one sent from God. His Muslim bearers sometimes referred to him as, quote, Satan's guest. He was the first one to bring the bicycle to Bahrain. To this day, some of the elderly Bahrainis refer to the machine as the devil's horse. His tenure in Bahrain was 1892 through 1912, 20 years. And during that time, he had taken an extended furlough in the States to care for his family's needs, to stir interest in the Muslim world, and to raise money for the printing of Arabic literature. Then at the request of the Presbyterian board, he moved to Egypt, took up the cause of publishing Arabic literature, and finding funding for the Nile Mission Press in Cairo, And he did that from 1912 through 1929. Then in 1929, after 38 years in the Arab world, he came home and he held the chair, the chairmanship as professor of history of religion and Christian missions at Princeton University. He stood as a beacon against modernism and liberal trends during that time. It was getting 
hit hard during the 20s with liberalism. In fact, that's when Westminster Seminary broke off. Machen and others broke off from Princeton and started uh, Westminster in 1927. In fact, Bob Jones University in Greenville started in 1929 because of the same reasons. Liberalism was coming from Europe. Zwamer was constantly engaging in dangerous exploratory trips in the early years of his missionary life, always distributing scriptures, and later extensive international exploratory and conference tours. Wherever there were Muslims community, Muslim communities, Zwamer would appear. Mesopotamia, the Arab Peninsula, trips into Yemen, second time to deliver Bibles for a British uh, mission group to a community of Jews resident there. Meetings in Rochester, Edinburgh, Denmark, returned to Bahrain via Egypt, where he was becoming involved in publishing Arabic literature, then on to India for a conference. Just in the 1920s, he was in Turkey, North Africa, Palestine, Java, and Sumatra. Conferences in the UK, South Africa, USA, Scandinavia, Egypt, other trips into Eastern Europe and the Balkans, China, where he once fell with his mule into a ravine. His personality, his temperament, Zwamer had a delightful sense of humor. And he could also play a practical joke, or he could use his sense of humor to his advantage, as he did in Cairo just before World War I, when he was to preach to the British soldiers who were stationed there. He had planned a service, a gospel service, and the time to start was approaching. Very few had come. The large tent was erected for the meeting. So Zwamer steps outside the tent and cried out a part of the Muslim call of prayer. And fearing an insurrection, the British troops came running only to find a solitary six-foot Dutchman grinning from ear to ear as he herded them into the tent. Perhaps he inherited some of his nervous disposition from his mother who had an aversion to idleness. When young Samuel was found to be somewhat passive, she would say, do something. He developed a busyness mode. And unfortunately, he never did acquire that Eastern cultural habit of sitting quietly and doing nothing. Neither in solitary contemplation or in a group setting. He was always moving. His wife Amy used to say that on Resurrection Day, Sam would have donned his crown and robe and already be standing awaiting Gabriel's blast on the trumpet, beating Gabriel to the punch. When Zwamer died, his grandson Peter Pickens wrote this, quote, His sermons were well-written and well-read, but they really came alive when he was up in the pulpit pounding them out with one hand while his other hand held his train schedule. I'm afraid grandfather will stir up too much activity until he finds out that heaven is supposed to be a place of rest. He was, from the standpoint of his opponents, a stubborn Dutchman. 
from the standpoint of his proponents, a persevering friend. He was all... He was to all a gentle giant in the faith and a Christian gentleman. Wherever he went, Zwamer had a tremendous capacity for friendship. He made friends at all levels of society. The, the Arabs respected him for his deep knowledge of Islam in the Arabic language. He studied Arabic nine years before he ever went off as a missionary. But his restlessness sometimes stood in the way of their ability to discern his deep love for them and his desire for their spiritual good. One Islamic scholar in Bahrain once said, quote, Thank God he did not love us more. In short, he was intense and dynamic as a speaker, warm and friendly and private, always focused on the spiritual good of his listeners but he was always busy. Summing up his influence. One, he opened up mission fields with Cantine in Kuwait, Iraq, Bahrain, and Oman. Secondly, literature ministry. He took full advantage of the Bible societies for scripture distribution and saw the word of God as the essential means of men coming to know the special favor and saving grace of God. And that's why he was so involved with the Presbyterian board in Egypt for the Nile Mission Press. Books written, he wrote 50 books. The first of which was written and published early in his missionary service and to this day remains a classic. My dear friend Leon Blosser treasures his autographed copy with the words, Pray for Arabia, above his name. Thirdly, fundraising. He was blunt, effective, and persistent. And fourthly, as a statesman for missions and as a professor at Princeton, he was a renowned speaker in demand all over the world. I mentioned that he spoke, to some of you, I mentioned he spoke at a missions conference in Nashville, Tennessee. And making full allowance for all that was being done by missionaries in Muslim lands, this speaker pointed out country after country, province after province, still absolutely without the light of life as far as their Muslim population was concerned. Some had no missionaries at all, such as Afghanistan with its four million Muslims. And again, we're talking a hundred years ago. No missionaries for four million Muslims. Some had missionaries along their heathen races, but none for the followers of the prophet of Allah. In China, for example, with 15 million Muslims, not a single missionary had been set apart for their evangelization. Yet the door was no longer closed in these inland provinces where most of them were found. And so Samuel Weimer stood up in this student volunteer uh, conference on missions. Quote, Dr. Weimer urged, When the door opens, we ought to press in sacrificing our lives if need be for God, as the Muslims did at Khartoum for their prophet. 
If the call voiced by those who have already spoken moved us deeply, coming from Persia, from Turkey, from Egypt, from India, if that was a call from God, what shall be said of the mute appeal of the 70 million of wholly unevangelized Muslim world? Shall we stand by and allow these 70 million to continue under the curse and in the snare of false religion? With no knowledge of the saving love and power of Christ? Not because they have proved fanatical or refused to listen. Not because they have thrust us back. But because none of us have ever had the courage to go to these lands and win them to Jesus Christ. Of course it will cost life. It is not an expedition of ease nor a picnic excursion to which we were called. It is going to cost many a life, and not lives only, but prayers and tears and blood. Leadership in this movement has always been leadership and suffering. There was Raymond Law, the first missionary to the Muslims, stoned to death in Algiers. Henry Martin, pioneering in Persia with the cry, let me burn out for God. We who are missionaries to the Muslims today call upon you to follow with us in their train, to go to these waiting lands and light the beacon of the love of Christ in all the Muslim world. Did not he live, pray, and suffer for Muslims as well as for us? Shall we do less if the call comes? Let us be like those Scots of Bruce who were ready to falter until the man on the white charger took the heart of Bruce in its casket and swinging it around cried, Oh, heart of Bruce, lead on. And as he flung it toward the enemy and bore down upon them, you could not have held those soldiers back with bands of steel. Say not, it is the appeal of the Muslim world or of the missionaries. No, it's the call of the master. Let us answer with the shout, O heart of Christ, lead on. And we will follow that cry and win the Muslim world for him. Dr. Zwamer was accustomed to saying, we simply bring the facts before you and ask, for a verdict. Well, in that conference in Nashville was a young student of Yale named William Borden, heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, the fortune. He just graduated from high school in Chicago, Illinois, and was given a trip around the world by his parents. And he came back, and after visiting all these different countries around the world, he says, I'm going to prepare for a life as a missionary. He wrote two words in the back of his Bible. No reserve. He went to Yale, and there as he began to study, he began to talk to students, and he got a small prayer group going. By the end of the first year, there were 150 students praying. By the end of his senior year, there were 1,000 out of Yale's 1,300 attending those prayer meetings. 
He took a group to this conference in Nashville, Tennessee, to the conference where Samuel Zwamer was preaching. He heard the challenges. Upon his graduation, he wrote two more words in his Bible, no retreat. He went to, instead of taking over the, the mega business of his family, he chose to go to Princeton Seminary and turn away so many high-paying job offers. Upon graduation from Princeton, he went to Egypt, intending to go to China as a missionary to the Muslims, but he went to Egypt to learn Arabic. And as soon as he got there, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within within a month, he was dead. 25 years of age. But while he was languishing on his bed, he wrote in his Bible two more words. No regrets. Samuel Zwamer, that we've been talking about tonight, preached his funeral. And William Borden, Bill Borden, is buried in the American cemetery in Cairo, Egypt. His Bible. No reserves. No retreat, no regrets. When I was at uh, Bahrain, I met a man there that uh, he grew up pretty much in Manama, Bahrain. He had been made uh, uh, president emeritus. He'd been in the hospital so long as as a leader and director of the hospital. He'd been... uh, the director of it for many years. and Leon took me into his office and I met Joseph Hyder. Joseph Hyder was in his mother's womb in like 1926. She was a Muslim and God saved her. She became a Christian. And in those days, if you became a Christian, you die. You're executed. And so... She had to come to the trial one day, stand before the judge, and, and she knew what was coming. She dressed herself in her black abaya, and she took a long, sharp knife and put it inside that abaya. She walked into the courtroom and stood behind the desk in front of the judge. And the judge began to plead with her not to continue on as a Christian. Come back to Islam. She said, no, I'd rather have Jesus. He said, but you're going to lose everything. You're going to lose your your lands and and your family, and you know you're going to lose your life. She said, no, I'd rather have Jesus. And about that time, she pulled that long knife out of her abaya and put it on the desk and she lifted her veil and she said go ahead judge you be the one I'm ready took the judge totally by surprise he said get this woman out of here it's clear she's crazy just get her out of here she left 
gave birth to Joseph Hyder. He became one of the three men in the world that started Gideon's International and lives today as a testimony of the amazing grace of God. Samuel Marinus Zwamer was called to his heavenly rest on April 2nd, 1952, just 10 days short of his 85th birthday. He was a man gifted by God and language, intelligence, and saving grace. He was a shining beacon, a focused light in an age when many of his contemporaries were abandoning the ship of biblical preaching and theological integrity. He was not without his faults, but he was a Christian, and he was a missionary, and he was a gentleman who stood head and shoulders above most all of us. When we get to heaven, we can ask William Borden what he thought of Samuel Zwamer. We can also ask Joseph Hyder what he thought of Samuel Zwamer. And to the glory and praise of God, he is building his church. And he's doing so through ways that we can never even dream of. It is for us, brothers and sisters, to give ourselves wholly to following Jesus Christ. Don't let anything distract us. Don't let anything pull us off course. God has given us the task of reaching our world with the gospel. And that may seem like an impossible, monumental thing that who could ever possibly think that could be done in our generation. But it's amazing what God can do when he has willing servants who will trust him and give their all to him. He will use us all. Whether any one of us are called to be a missionary and go to another country, another nation, or whether it's to be a faithful member in a church like this where you're praying and giving and serving and supporting and loving and encouraging but you are giving your all, your heart, your life, and everything about you for you to live is Christ and for you to die is gain. Have no reserves. Have no retreat. You'll have no regrets.